This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Psalm 73. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is not a happy, slappy sermon, all right? So uh, I just want to warn you ahead. I had planned something for the last couple weeks that I was going to preach, and then this week the Lord just really led me in a little bit different direction, because probably this is where I've been this week. I'm a little feeling sorry for myself on having to uh, pack up and leave again. It gets tiring after a while, and um, I miss, I miss my family and I miss being here. So there's been a little self-introspection time, you know, a little feeling sorry for myself kind of a deal. But none of you can relate to that, I'm sure. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about when life gets out of focus. When life gets out of focus. Of course, again, maybe none of you have struggled with that issue. But when life gets out of focus, one of the results of that is called self-pity. In Psalm 73, we might call this the Psalm of self-pity. And we're going to look at a man by the name of Asaph. Now I want you to understand that it's easy for us to get out of touch with what is real. And when we lose our perspective of reality, we can say and do some pretty crazy things. Our perception of reality will always affect our response to reality. So perception determines response. Belief determines behavior. Theology, right theology, should determine right behavior. You may believe the right thing, but you may not be living the right thing. There's a problem. When my perceptions are messed up, my spiritual equilibrium gets off balance. And unfortunately, many of us in the world we live in, with our minds being bombarded by media, by TV, by every other, by the internet and every other thing you can think of, it is easy for us to have faulty perceptions. What you're filling your mind with will eventually determine how you're going to be living. Many of you today probably feel that life is not fair. Maybe you've been thinking that this week. You've been working hard. You've been a person of integrity at work, and yet they passed you over for the raise and for the promotion, and they gave it to some guy that you know is cheating the company. It's not fair, is it? Or maybe you think of other things in your life where you look around, and it seems like the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. This doesn't seem fair. I remember last year in December, I was struggling with the Lord at the death of Doug, our dear friend and fellow pastor, laborer in the Lord. 
And I really struggled with, Lord, he loved you. He committed everything to you. He resigned from a job that was a lot more than he ever would have made working for us to go to work for our church in Kuwait, he and his wife, Bia. And then, right after he resigned and agreed to come to work, two weeks later we found out that he had cancer for the next year. He battled cancer and died. Lord, it doesn't seem fair. I think sometimes, Miguel, of some of the things you've been going through, doesn't seem fair. I did this. I did this. I thought I was doing the right thing here. I did this. And it just doesn't seem fair. God, if you are who you say you are and things are the way you say they are, then why does it not seem fair? Non-believers seem to experience more blessings than we do. In order to find some spiritual stability, we need a reality check. And Psalm 73 will give us this. But I'm going to warn you, the first portion of Psalm 73 is not happy. Because you're going to look at life from a human perspective. There's going to be a change, and I want you to notice the change when it shifts. Get ready to write it down, what this change is going to be. And here are the heart of the psalmist when there's a shift. But notice what causes this shift. It doesn't just happen. There's something that caused a shift in his thinking, which indeed then changed his reaction to life and his behavior in life. Let's stand in honor to the Lord's word and let's read Psalm 73. I'm going to take the time to read all of the 28 verses because you can't understand the last half of Psalm 73 until you understand the struggles of Psalm 73 in the verse, first portion of it. He begins in verse 1 with a great theological affirmation. He says this, Truly, God is good. Can you say that today? Truly, God is good. Do you really believe that? Let's, let's read on. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, if you got a pen, you may want to underline that because now there's a shift in his thinking. But, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not as not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have high in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray make it come alive and active in our hearts. Teach us, Lord, today. Reshape our thinking. Give us a correct perspective on life. Lord, let your preacher speak your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you noticed the shift. And I hope that when we come to that pa part of this passage, that you will just fill your Bible with markings and red letters and lines to point out really who you are and who you serve. But this psalm was written by a man named Asaph. He was a mature, godly man who served as the worship leader in the temple and he was the author of 12 Psalms. Now, let's get the picture. Asaph is a righteous man. Asaph is a man of God. Asaph serving the Lord. You might say he's on staff at the local church. And yet Asaph is struggling. The first part of this psalm is rather depressing. It's Asaph bearing his heart and his understanding of the way life looks through these two things on our face. You see, in spite of all that he knew and in spite of all of his position and everything else, he was ready to hand everything up and to throw in the towel. He was ready to go back home. In fact, in this psalm, you will notice he almost walked away from God because his perception of reality was mixed up. There are people in this room right now that may be on the verge of this. You have been struggling with your, with your perceptions of things. And you've been questioning whether it's worth it to continue to follow God, to be faithful, to walk this out. What good is it anyway? That's kind of what he's saying here. He almost walked away from God because everything was off. And this psalm is very personal, and it's filled with gut-riching honesty. I like Asaph. Asaph asked the question that many of us have asked at one time or another. Here, 
but never heal. Oh, we're too religious for that. We're too spiritual for that. I love the Psalms. I love reading David's Psalms. I like it when these people get real with what's going on because the Bible doesn't seem so far away anymore. See, sometimes you read the scriptures and you just kind of, oh, that was for them and that was theirs and it doesn't mean anything. These guys weren't like really real. Uh, they don't understand real life. Oh, really? If you read the scripture and listen to the hearts of these people, you come to find them pouring out, literally in this passage, puking out some of the, the stuff that's inside that's killing him, that's, that's literally causing him to question his faith and wonder if he should walk or not. He's saying if God is supposed to bless believers, why do we struggle with health? Why do we struggle with finances and relational turmoil while the unbelievers around us seem to enjoy prosperity? Why is it so hard for God's people when the lost seem to be just, man, they're just going and blowing. I mean, it, it's happening. What's it so hard? Or maybe we could ask it this way. Why are the wicked successful while the righteous are suffering? Asa begins with an introductory now. Go back to verse 1. He begins with an introductory statement. It's a summary statement. It's a theological conclusion all wrapped up into this one verse. And it's interesting. He starts with this, but then there's a turn. He begins by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, Asaph is stating the universal premise for the believer. What is that premise? God is good. We sing the song, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And, you know, we, we clap our hands and shout and sing God is good. But do we really believe that? God is good. In fact, he begins this with the word truly. And this word has the idea of exclusivity, which says this, no matter what happens, God and God alone is good. No matter what you're going through, no matter what happens in life, God's still good. Through death, through financial ruin, through sickness, through family issues, God's still good. He doesn't change. Truly, God is good. And while we count on this certainty, it's also the crux of our problem here. We say this is true, but then we struggle with this, this thought. If, if you're good, God, then what in the world's going on? Look at Psalm 84, verse 11. It says this, and it reinforces the dilemma that we face. He says, No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. So no good thing does he withhold. See, if God's good, shouldn't we receive more good things in life? Shouldn't we at least have more blessings than those who don't even care about God? Come on. Sure, we say. And that's our wrestling point. If God's good and God is great, God's going to do this stuff, then why am I not seeing that in the life experience? After stating what he knows is ultimately true, look at verse 2. Because in the next several verses now, Asaph looks around from this perspective. 
a human perspective. Through his eyes, he looks around at what is going on, and he was bothered by what he had been taught in Scripture because what he had experienced in life was radically different than what he was taught in Scripture. There's the conflict we face. We read of God's goodness. We look at our experience, and we struggle. And in verse 2, look at what he says. He admits that he almost slipped. This verse stands in stark contrast to the certainty of verse 1. Verse 1 is, God is good. But verse 2 says, I almost slipped at that thought. In other words, he says, as for me, my slip, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. In other words, God, you might be good, but I almost belled on you. Asa felt like he was trying to walk on a moss-covered rocks in a lake. I don't know if you've ever done that. Or just go with me to the, to the Middle East and go to Jordan and we'll take you to the Dead Sea and try to walk on the rocks in the Dead Sea with flip-flops on. Not good idea. It's very rocky there and I'm falling all over. Bam, bang. And, and you know, it's so slick. And I can just imagine this is what... In his mind, he's thinking, look, I came very, very close to losing my confidence in God's goodness because of, of these things that, are, that I'm about ready to share. I almost slipped. And I believe there are people in this room today that could say, man, I've been sliding around, Pastor. If you get real, I've been sliding around. I've been struggling. I've been questioning life. I've been questioning God with some of this stuff. Now notice four things that he saw around him. First, he saw the prosperity of the wicked in verse 3. He tells us in verse 3 why he almost went spiritually A-W-O-L. Look at it. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That word arrogant comes from a root word that means loud or clear voice. The idea is that a proud person is one who toots his own horn real loud. Have you ever noticed that, that some lost people just love to brag about all their stuff, the things they've done? Guys get really gross at times, ladies. I remember working construction. We'd be driving in the back of the truck, and these reprobates would brag on their lady friends and all they did and how much they have and what they were doing last night and how smashed they got and how wonderful life is. It's not. And I'm sitting there thinking, dude, that sounds sick. <laughs> but all along, here, here's the arrogance seems they, they just brag about their position and about their situation. And notice that Asaph is not upset with the arrogant or the wicked. He's jealous of them. He wants what they have, but actually it goes much deeper than that. The word prosperity doesn't do justice to the original term here. Did you know the, the Hebrew word they use for prosperity is shalom? Many of you have heard that word. We translate it peace. But the word is pregnant with meaning in the Old Testament. The root of shalom is completion or fulfillment and is often used to describe peace or wholeness, harmony, physical well-being. 
all those things. So Asaph doesn't get this. Why should the wicked have everything that was only promised to God's covenant people? It doesn't seem fair. And he's doing what many of us do. Now hang on. Because we're like Asaph if we can get real. You see, he's, he's basing all of his judgments upon what he sees. His perspective is on the present, and he has forgotten the future. See, when I lose perspective and I only see here, I'm in trouble. So he was upset at the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 4 and 5. He's upset at the peace of the wicked. In verse 4 and 5, Asaph wonders why life seems so good for those who have nothing to do with God. It says this, they have no struggles, their body are healthy and strong, they are free from their burdens, common to man, they are not plagued by the human ills. Man, God, why are they so happy and things are going so good? And then in verses 6 through 12, he's upset at the pride of the wicked. You know, <laughs> sometimes you look around and you think, well, yeah, they're, they're doing great and I'm doing so bad. And, and, and we get all out of perspective, and it just gets worse when they're so arrogant about it. Yeah, if you believers, man, are you Christian? You, you, you know, you born-againers, <laughs> gospel people. If you weren't like that and you were more like us, man, you could have this stuff too. You see, the very people are often the most prosperous and live the most peaceful lives are also those who are the most arrogant. They don't need any jewelry because they wear their pride like expensive jewelry. They think very highly of themselves and very little of other people. Verse 7 says, they have no limits. They have all the time, money, influence to do whatever they want. Notice it talks about they're, they're fat, they eat a lot, they they. Well, the righteous are starving and suffering and being put to death and things are happening. God, that doesn't kind of line up, does it? Prideful people, verse 8, may make fun of believers. Verse 9 and 11, it speak against God, it says. In verse 10, it indicates that their boasting and scoffing was so powerful an impact on those that are trying to follow God that the more they talk, the more it impacted those that were trying to follow God. And in verse 12, he gives a summary of what the wicked are like. Get it. Underline that. This is something. He says, they are carefree, they increase in wealth. In other words, he's really feeling sorry for himself right now. Look, God, I'm going through a tough time. And all my lost friends, they got money, they're happy, they're... They don't go through the same struggles. They're eating. I, I, I had to miss a meal. I didn't have any food today. I gave it at church last week on my money. Now I don't have anything. So there's Asaph. Isn't it interesting how, how things really get out of perspective when we start feeling sorry for ourselves? Really? Do they really not go through problems? Do they really not face struggles and trials and difficulties like we do? Let's admit something this morning. Many of us 
are secretly looking up to those who are famous and financially secure. Come on. We long to be like them. Some of you teenagers and young people in this room are wondering right now if following Christ is really worth it. You see, why should you live for Jesus when your friends seem to do, be doing all right without him? It's exactly what the devil wants you to think. Jesus, you know, why, 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 why be ridiculed at school? Why, why have to deal with this stuff? It's just easier to join them than it is to stand up. Maybe you're ready to cave in instead of standing up for Jesus. Is it more important to you to be popular than pure? Think about that a minute this morning. Well, and the fourth thing that Asaph seems to struggle with is the pity of the righteous, and he's one of them. How pitiful he is. Look at verse 13. Asaph basically believes that there is no advantage to holy living. That's his conclusion. Oh, he's starting to tube out spiritually when he writes, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. From a human perspective, there seems to be little reward for righteous living. That's what he's saying. Look, at, it's in vain what I've done. It's just not worth it. I, I, I've been such a good, good believer, good follower. And what has it got me? Look, the Living Bible puts it this way. Listen, it says, have I been wasting my time? Why take the trouble to be pure? That's exactly what the guy was struggling with. In Ma Malachi chapter 3, verse 14, he says, you have said it is fruitful to serve God? What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. See, that's where he was. Very sad point. He's down at the bottom. This guy is doing what some of us have been doing. Going in our room, closing the curtains, putting on sad music, curling up in a ball, and bemoaning our situation how miserable we really are. And look at verse 14. Asaph wonders why he's been beat up while the prideful are prospering. And this is really where he gets on his pity pot really good right now. And he begins to describe the emotional deluge that has come over him. And get this, he says, all day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. His afflictions last all day. And when he wakes up the next morning, he says, I got a boatload of new problems tomorrow. Nothing's going away. I'm miserable. Note the exaggeration. He says, I've been spanked all day long every day. Really? Kind of sounds like our wives. Ladies, hang on a second. Amen. We've got a, we've got, thank you. Thank you for supporting us. We've got, I'll buy lunch later. <laughs> okay, Teddy. We've got a, we've got a closet, walk-in closet. The men's clothes, here. 
ladies. Shoes. <laughs> Cabinets. Clothes. So you got a special event to go to. And you say, okay, honey, get ready, please. We got to go. Come on, I'm ready. Let's go. I got my one thing off my shelf. Put it on. I'm ready to go. Come on, what's so hard about this? All of a sudden you say, I'll be back. Let's be ready, okay? All of a sudden you hear, <laughs> she's crying. Oh, honey, what's wrong? We've got this special party to go to, and I have nothing to wear. <laughs> That's called exaggeration. <laughs> See, that's what Asaph is doing. Asaph is filled with turmoil, confusion, and despondency. And what begins of envy in verse 2 and 3 results in agonizing self-doubt. It seems as if Asaph now is trying to pressure God. This is interesting because now Asaph is kind of turned to the next level. Not just feeling sorry for himself, but kind of saying, God, look at my terrible situation. And I, and I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. <laughs> and remember, I, I've lived a pure life. I mean, I, I mean, I've really followed you, God. Hallelujah. I take notes on time. I, you know, Lord, you know me. I, I'm in the, I'm in a RC. I, I am, I, I'm, wow. Look at me, Lord. So, he now tries to manipulate him like a child. Daddy, can I have this, please? No, okay. But I, I did mow the yard this week. I know you're supposed to. No, but come on. If you don't give it to me, I'm going to cry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> See, we try to manipulate God like a little kid. And Asaph has gone through all of these emotions. He said, I'm struggling so hard. And I, I, I'm at this point, I, I, I've almost slipped and fallen away. And Lord, if you just do something nice, maybe I won't. Can we cut a deal? You bless me, and I'll hang out. We laugh at that, but some of us really get to that point. So what does he do next? Look at verse 15 and 16. Because the first thing he does next is really pretty good, because he says, look, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. So he's saying, I had to be careful what I say to other people. I want to say, I, I think that might be some good advice in some cases, but let me tell you, I, I'll say with Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? <laughs> you know, how's that working for you? Because w we can cover up all we want, and we can be so proud of ourselves because we're not talking to anybody because I may discourage them. But let me tell you, there are times we need to sit down with someone we love and trust, and we need to get some good old gospel counsel. Sometimes our perspective is so screwed up that we need somebody who can point us back to reality, the reality of God's word and God's heart. And then the second thing that he does, he keeps things inside, and it only made him want to explode. 
verse 16. He says, when I tried to understand all this, I was oppressive. It was oppressive to me. See, he was so miserable, he couldn't talk to others, and he was so overwhelmed because he couldn't figure out he was ready to blow up. How many of you are walking time bombs? Just walk around. You're so confused. You're struggling with stuff, and then something happens, and your friends are going, whoa, what did I do? Back off. I didn't do anything. Or your wife, or your husband. I mean, come on. And then all of a sudden, in verse 17, something changes. As we come to verse 17, we see this noticeable shift in Asaph's paradigm. As he goes through this incredible reality check. And folks, I know this first part's been pretty hard. As we come to this next section, I'm going to ask you with me. Do a reality check. In the first half of the Psalms, he's viewing life from a human outlook. In the second half, he reframes his understanding of reality with a heavenly viewpoint. See, when I'm looking at things through my human perspective, life is screwed up. It isn't fair. And whoever told you it was misguided you. But when I see life from a heavenly viewpoint, things level out. The first section deals with the trial of faith. The second section deals with the triumph of faith. You might say it like this. The first section, verses 2 to 16, focus on self. The last section focuses on God. The first section looked into the present. The second section is longing for the future. The first section is slipping away, but the second section is secure forever. The first part is rocked by envy, but the second part is ready for evangelism. See, he was so envious, but in the last part, he's ready to tell others about the gospel. What is it that changes everything for Asaph? That's my question. Lord, what is it? What changed everything for Asaph? Verse 17, get it. You might miss it. It's this. Worship. What? Worship? Verse 17 says, Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. I really like how the message translates this. It says this. Then I understood the whole picture. When we just look at those around us and when we judge God according to our own experiences, we can never, ever have the whole picture. Everything is put into perspective when we go into the presence of God. The prosperity of the wicked had filled up his vision, but from now to the end of the psalm, God himself The God of the sanctuary becomes his focal point. Here, he was overwhelmed with the wicked. Here, he is overwhelmed by the presence of God. Everything is put into proper perspective when we go into the presence of God. The word sanctuary is in the plural here, and it talks about place of worship, places where they would go. But let me tell you, in 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
who you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In other words, it's saying, look, we don't have to make a pilgrimage to some spot. Every year, people from all over the world travel to Ram uh, for Ramadan. They're traveling there for their pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. Planes are full of people going to pay homage to make their trek. Look, as a believer, we don't have to go to some spot. We bow down before a holy God right here in this place, at our home, in the workplace, at school, wherever we are. We're in the presence of the living God. And listen to me. If we don't gaze at God, we'll default to our own human perspectives, and we're going to end up becoming jealous and bitter. If we don't gaze on God throughout the day, things are going to get out of perspective. God's point of view is understood when we meet with him, when we're reminded of his attributes, his character, his power. We see both God's judgment of sin as well as his solution offered to sinners. And when we do that, guess what? It was only the sanctuary of God that Asaph could understand that the awful predicament of the wicked and the sweetness of God's grace and mercy in his own life, when he saw it from God's perspective, then life looked different. When we look at life through the eyes of eternity, we see these four things. Write them down. First, we see the ruin of the wicked, verses 18 to 20. I don't care how you try to candy coat it or preach around it. The Bible talks about judgment. It's not pretty. But God is holy and God hates sin and God has promised to deal with sin and those who refuse to deal with it through the blood of Jesus. Friends, carefully listen. Instead of jealousy, longing for the things that lost people have, we should have a holy horror about their final destiny. Verse 20 warns us that they are living in a dream or a fantasy that will eventually turn into a nightmare. Judgment is real, and we shouldn't try to sugarcoat it or the awful truth of eternal punishment. It's very real. Look at the author told us that he struggled, he had problems, he struggled with all of this, but now, as he looks at life from his perspective, he sees things differently. They're not so blessed. They have something that they're facing before them. We can't rewrite God, what God said, but we can't, and we can't whitewash the reality of everlasting punishment. But listen to me, people. Without Christ, we are one step from destruction, one breath from ruin, and one heartbeat from hell. So the first thing you realized was their end. The second thing you realized was the repentance of the righteous. Verse 21, verse 22. Because it says, Asaph now owns up to things. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, look, when I was looking at things wrong, I was like an animal, man. I was just like an animal. Just looking one way, down at the ground for the next bite. But when he wanted what the wicked had, he was eaten up on the inside. Now listen to me, folks. When you're controlled by bitterness, you behave like an animal. He uses a term for a grazing animal that lives with his head hunched down, seeing only grass and never the sky. And when Asaph looked only at the here and now, he was like that ornery animal. But when he lifted up his eyes and he looked 
had the right perspective, life looked different. The next thing he saw was the rewards of the righteous in verse 23 through 26. And I love that word in verse 23. It starts with this, yet, yet. See, after confessing that he was bitter, senseless, and ignorant, he immediately recognized that God has not cast him away. Hallelujah. I want to tell you this. God loves it when you come to him and bears your heart. Bear your heart. He's not going to cast you away. In fact, he'll embrace you, and he'll help you come through this. Verse 24 describes two more rewards, God's guidance and God's glory. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Look at this. God promises to counsel us and lead us through life, and then when our time on earth is finished, he will take us into glory. We can rest, folks, in God's grip. And in verse 25, Asaph is finally at the point where God has always wanted him to be. Listen to what he says. Look in verse 25. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Until you and I can get into the point of saying this, God, you're all I want because you're all I need, then we're going to wonder why life isn't fair. But when you can say, God, you're all I want and you're all I need, things look different. This portion can only be translated as for what it is, our allotment, our inheritance. God, you are allotment. You are our inheritance. And finally, he closes out this in verse 28 with the responsibility of the believer. And I want you to notice what that is. Look real quick. Verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Here's what it is, folks. When you get a right perspective, there's two things that happen. One, you'll stay near God. You'll say, I need to snuggle in, Daddy. I need to get there in that holy place. I need the sanctuary. I got to get a different perspective than what's on television or what's on the Internet. My Google search is not helping me. And the second thing is this, our responsibility, get this, this is important, is to tell others about God. I will tell of all your deeds. See, because before Asaph worshiped, he concluded that it wasn't worth it to follow God. He was filled with envy and decided not to tell other believers about his doubts. But don't miss this, his, this connection, folks. As long as he was disconnected with God, he could say nothing at all, only envy instead of evangelism. But in the second half of the psalm, he reaches a different conclusion. And once he sees the destruction of the wicked, he no longer craves what they have. Now he can speak. Now listen, and get what I say, because what I'm about to say, I don't want you to take wrong. But I want you to hear this. Many of us, and when I point a finger, there's three pointing back at me. 
But many of us don't tell others about Jesus, not because we don't know how. Don't give me that excuse. But because we don't really believe that what we have is better than what they have. Did you hear what I said? Worldliness is devastating to our witness because we secretly desire to be more like lost people than we desire for them to be like Jesus. We want what they have more than what we have to give to them. One of the best motivations for evangelism is this. Come into worship. Come into worship. Into the presence of the Lord. I close with these lessons. We just write them down. I'm not going to speak on them. But please put these down. These are the, the applications that I learned today. First, in this world, Christians are not, not exempt from problems. Did you figure that out yet? Join the club. There are problems. Two, life's not fair when viewed from a human perspective. That's true, isn't it? Three, I like this one. It's hard to be optimistic through misty optics. If you're crying all the time, it's hard to see things from a better perspective. Self-pity distorts our vision of life's circumstances. And four, God sees life from a higher perspective. Folks, if you understand that when you go into the sanctuary, you no longer look at life here, you look at life from heaven perspective. Have you ever been in an airplane or a hot air balloon? You're flying over and you're just getting ready to land and you're looking down and you see all these little houses, little pools, little jaguars, little Mercedes, little cars, little kids, little people, really little dots down there running around. Have you ever thought that that's what they really are? Just little things? You see, here, when we look at our life today, it's, I got to get that house, I got to get that car, I got to do this. Uh, God, why don't you bless me? Look, look at this. But when we really move into the presence of God and we look at life from his perspective, it doesn't really matter so much. All we live for on this life, and then what? And lastly, get this, intimate fellowship with God produces right thinking in me. You see, when I get my thinking straight, or my fellowship straight, my thinking gets straight. So when I'm feeling like, oh, poor me, I challenge you to do this. Go to Psalm 73, the last part. Verse 25, verse 26, pour yourself Oh, but Lord, you are so good. Verse 1 is true when you see it from verse 17 on. Verse 1 is still true when you look at it from verse 2 to verse 16, but it doesn't seem like it. Don't let your feelings determine your theology. Let your theology determine your perspective. Father, we thank you that you have given us a different perspective. Lord, forgive us for shying back from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because, Lord, maybe today we're not so convinced that it's so good. We're still hanging on to and looking at our neighbors around us. Lord, I just pray that you will adjust our focus today. Those, Lord, that are struggling, let them come into your presence and bear their heart and see the goodness of God. And you speak to them through your Holy Spirit, Lord, even through these words today. Help them get their focus back. What really matters. Instead of looking at life from a human perspective, let us look at life through an eternal perspective. That this isn't the end. And God makes right all those wrongs. And we are children of the King. And we have a heavenly promise. We receive the benefits even now. But Lord, we look forward to full blessing in your presence. Lord, let us get our perspective right. And let us have a burden and see those around us who don't know you through your eyes. Let us see them the way you see them and love them the way you love them instead of being jealous and envious and angry at them, Lord. Bless your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.